be reading in English first. Um, we are reading 1 King chapter 19, verse 1 through 13. And then in Swahili, I'll be reading just the first three verses. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the God deals with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of them. Elijah was afraid and went for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your, pro your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on a mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now the Swahili, uh, and I'm just reading verse 1, 2, 3. Basi Ahaebu Nanjisi alivio wao mambi wote kwa upanga. Ndipo Yezebeli akamepekelea ilaya mjombe kusema. Mungu anifanie hivyo na kuzidi nisipokufania roho yako kesho. Panapo wakati huyu kama roho ya mojo wapao wao. Na ye aliopoana ayo aliondoka akaenda aifaiti royo yake akafika Beersheba mjia ya dia akamchoa mtumishi wake huko this is the word of the lord Morning, Bridgetown. It is an absolute gift to be with you. This is one of my favourite churches on the planet. So I consider this a treat, a total privilege to be in the room, let alone get the opportunity to teach and continue your teaching series on hearing the voice of God. 
Thank you for providing sunshine. We rarely get this in the UK. So that feels like a, an extra bonus. So the title for this message is Whispers in the Wilderness. And the question I wanna address is, how do you hear the still small voice of God when the darkness that surrounds, the fear that surrounds feels really noisy? That's the question we're gonna tackle. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that You'd come now and speak to us through Your Word and by Your Spirit. And all God's people said... Amen. Let me, let me start with a, a story that might frame this message, but more than that, maybe even frame the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So I, I've got three kids, Benj, Josh, Olive. They're a little bit older now. But if you rewind the clock five or so years, something would happen to me every single night. I'd put the kids to bed. Eventually, B and I would go to bed. And then in the early hours, like two or three in the morning, I'd hear a voice that would go something like this. Daddy like, Daddy. And I did what any loving parent would do. I ignored that voice. Um, but the voice kept going, like, Dad, Daddy. So I rebuked that voice in the name of Jesus, <laughs> commanded it to go away. And that prayer wasn't answered. It, it kept going, like, Dad, Daddy. So eventually my wife would sort of kick me or elbow me and I'd run upstairs and one of the kids would basically say, Dad, I, I think there's monsters under the bed. I'm pretty sure there's monsters under the bed. So I'd have a look because you never know. Um, I'd have a little look and I'd say, look, no, I've checked. There's no monsters under the bed. They might be hiding in the cupboard, but they're definitely not under the bed. And then they'd say, but there's a dark shadowy figure in the corner, like, can you just check it? And it would normally be a teddy or a piece of clothing that was hanging there, casting a shadow. And I'd, I'd remove that. And then they might say something like, I think there might be a fox in the house. Now we have a problem with urban foxes. They sometimes jump into our garden. They're horrible creatures. Um, so they'd say, I think maybe one of the foxes is in the house. And I'd respond and say, no, there's only one fox in this house and that's your mum. And she's fast asleep. <laughs> She's fast asleep, so I can guarantee you there's no foxes uh, in the house. And at that point, they'd say, well, can you just lie down with me? So I'd jump into bed with them and I would hold them. Um, and I would say to them, it's all right, Daddy's here. It's all right, Daddy's here. And we'd basically both fall asleep until morning light kicked in. And I think I learned something in that season that there is an antidote to fear, particularly when it comes to fear of the dark. And the antidote to fear isn't just daylight, like daylight will come, but you can actually experience peace in the midst of the darkness. And the antidote to fear is the presence of your father, even in the midst of the darkness. And I'm speaking spiritually now, like we're living in a cultural moment where it feels pretty dark, that despair levels are pretty high that anxiety levels are climbing, that we're living through a mental health crisis, particularly amongst a younger demographic. It's pretty scary out there, but it is possible to experience peace in the darkness, not just waiting for daylight, although I believe daylight's coming. It's possible to experience the presence of our Father in such a way that it births peace. Peace. So what was really exciting to me was hearing about the Asbury outpouring. 
So February the 8th, you may have heard of what's happened at Asbury. It really is an outpouring of presence. 8th of February at a compulsory chapel service. That sounds horrific to me, but at the university, there's a compulsory chapel service. Um, And at that chapel service, the Spirit fell in power. And what was meant to be an hour-long chapel service became 16 days of 24-7 prayer and 100,000 people descending upon this tiny town, Wilmore in Kentucky, to encounter to the presence of God. And I got the opportunity to spend four days in Wilmore seeing what the Lord was doing. And what I saw was both remarkable and unremarkable. It was overwhelming and it was underwhelming. So I get off the plane, I drive to Wilmore, I park up and then I walk into this auditorium, the Hughes Auditorium, which is a great name for an auditorium. Um, and it was similar size to this. And as I looked at what was happening, they were worshipping, but the music, it, it wasn't great quality. It was like some 19, 20 year olds, you know, giving it a go. It wasn't like unbelievable. The sound was pretty average. There was no like lighting rig, no smoke machines, um, no big screens with graphics or any lyrics on the screen. Every so often someone would come and share a Bible verse or give a little message, but it wasn't unbelievably impressive. So at one level it was underwhelming, but there was something overwhelming and it was the presence of God in that place. Like the thickness of God's presence. I'm not sure I've ever experienced it like that. Like there were stories of young people, students at the university dragging their mattresses into the sanctuary because the presence of God was so beautiful in that place. They didn't even want to go back to their room to sleep. They wanted to stay in the presence of God. There were students that were packing three meals for the day because they didn't even want to leave the sanctuary for a bite of breakfast, lunch or and dinner. They were just hungry for the presence of God. I've never seen anything like it before in my life. And I feel like I've seen God move in power. Some of my backstory is I was probably eight, nine, ten years old during the charismatic renewal movement, a move of the Spirit that hit the UK hard in the most beautiful way. When John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, started coming to the UK and, and things started to shake up the church. So I remember as a child, this is a formative moment in my life, walking into gatherings like this where the Spirit was moving in power and people were shaking under the power of the Spirit and falling over and people were speaking in tongues and there were stories of supernatural healing and salvation and someone would scream as they're getting set free from demonic oppression and people would be laughing in the spirit and barking and backflipping, not the last two, but all of this stuff was kicking off. I I feel like I've seen what it looks like when the spirit moves in power and when I stepped into the Hughes Auditorium in Asbury, I was expecting more of the same, but it was different. It was different. There weren't lots of manifestations of power but there was an incredible sense of God's presence. If the charismatic renewal movement was about the church rediscovering the power of the Spirit, what I witnessed at Asbury was the church rediscovering the priority of presence. The priority of presence. And 
I came back from Asbury and what we're seeing at KXC right now and talking to pastors from all over the world, people are saying the same thing. There's a spiritual hunger that I've never experienced before. The water levels are rising. And when we gather to praise God, there's a a stronger sense of His manifest presence. I believe daylight's coming. I genuinely do. But this is a moment where we're to tune into the still small voice, the whisper in the wilderness, the whisper in the darkness that basically says, I'm with you, be courageous. This is a threshold moment for you, Bridgetown, as a church and for our church back home. This is a a threshold moment for the church. I believe a season change is happening. I think the dawn from on high is breaking in upon us. To switch metaphor, I think winter is beginning to pass and spring is upon us. And biblically speaking, when you have this transition from winter to spring, it's marked by spring rains these gentle rains that water the ground and prepare the ground for abundance. The story we just heard, which was so beautiful, we're seeing a trickle of that, but I think the trickles are gonna become a tidal wave. I think we can expect expect more of it. The Spirit is moving in power. um, There's a lady at our church She's highly prophetic and every so often she'll just write down a prophetic vision or dream that she's had. And I just wanna read what she wrote for our community, but I really believe it for you. Um, This is a, a piece of writing about these threshold moments when we are about to step into all that the Lord has for us. She says this, threshold moments are equally beautiful and terrifying. They have the capacity to make or break the vision. As you stand on the cusp of everything you've ever dared hope for, you survey the land that now lies before you, your eyes tracing the intricate shapes that settle on the horizon too good to imagine. This is what has been stirring for so long. This has been the cry of your heart for years hidden deep down, but now here it is. That first glimpse of dream turned reality within reach right before your very eyes. So nearly there. And as you stand there at the threshold of everything you've ever dared dream about with that cocktail of excitement and fear rising in equal measure, that other voice kicks in. The one that gently tells you to take a step back from the threshold. It whispers to you that passing through that door will have its costs. It's too good to be true. Or even worse, what lies in front of you all is a mirage and you'd be foolish to walk through. It will disappear as soon as you enter. It's better to survey the land from the doorway, to distance yourself from it just in case, to stand at the threshold just watching. It's better to quietly let the dream die now before sacrifices are made, bridges are burned and there's no safe way back. Threshold moments have power. Many see them as the end of a long journey. They finally glimpse what their hearts have longed for, but they stop exhausted and find themselves settling in the doorway to all they've hoped for, never actually crossing through and taking hold of it. Tired and exhausted, they find contentment in the reasoning that they've made it this far, that they can see it from a distance. But the truth is that these threshold moments are just the start of the adventure. They're only just the beginning. So Bridgetown, Step in, take courage and move forward. You've been called for such a time as this. Threshold moments are contested space. 
threshold moments when we're about to step into the abundance that the Lord has for us, that's the moment you can expect a counter voice basically saying, shrink back, step back, do not step into your destiny. And in the midst of that wilderness moment, that threshold moment, we need to tune into a still small voice that births courage. Let me give you an example of this, a story from the life of Martin Luther King. Now, the backstory of this, he's just taken on the leadership of the civil rights movement. And as he takes on the leadership, he begins to experience serious, serious pushback. So the context for this story is that he's just been in jail for the first time. He's shaken by the experience. He gets home that night, midnight, there's a phone call. And the phone call is another death threat. But this time, it's not just him as the target. The target is his wife and his kids. And this is what follows. King sat staring at an untouched cup of coffee and tried to think of a way out a way to quietly surrender leadership and resume the serene life of scholarship he'd planned for. In the next room lay his wife Coretta, already asleep, along with their newborn daughter Yolanda. Here's how King remembers it in a sermon he preached, and I'm quoting now. And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started to think about a dedicated, devoted and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I'll never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even till the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Three nights later, as promised, a bomb exploded on the front porch of King's home, filling the house with smoke and broken glass, but injuring no one. King took it calmly, saying this, my religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. It feels pretty dark right now, culturally speaking, but I believe the church is at a threshold moment and the enemy's saying, shrink back. Do not step into your destiny. Do not step into abundance. But there is a still small voice, a whisper in the wilderness saying, I am with you right now. Like step in, take courage for such a time as this. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at some lessons from the life of Elijah that zoom in on the effect that fear has on our lives. And then we're gonna look at some lessons from how God responds in this breakdown moment for Elijah. So let's look at lessons from Elijah's life. Let's read again the passage or at least the first few verses. Remember the backstory, 1 Kings 18, an epic triumphant victory at Mount Carmel where Elijah takes on the 450 prophets of Baal and is victorious. And this happens next. Now Ahab, the king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. 
and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Ooh, pretty intense, right? This is this incredibly powerful woman basically saying, Elijah, I'm giving myself 24 hours. I've made vows in the spiritual realm. 24 hours, I'm gonna take you down and I'm gonna take you out. And Elijah is terrified. So what is the effect that fear has on his life? Number one, fear distorts reality. Fear always distorts reality. So let's look at a couple of examples. Verse nine and 10. So Elijah goes into a cave, he spends the night. God speaks, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he responds with this. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. That's a statement of feeling, by the way. It's not a statement of fact. Like that's his perception of reality, but it's not reality. There is our perception of reality and there is reality and fear widens the gap. What is reality? Well, a chapter before, verse 13, Elijah's servant says, haven't you heard my Lord what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, you can do the math, and supplied them with food and water. Elijah knows, right, there's a hundred other prophets. But in this moment of panic, fear distorts reality. Here's another distortion. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. That's perception of reality. It's not reality. This is reality. 1 Kings 18 verse 30. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Then the fire of God fell. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, the God of Israel, he's God. The Lord, he's God. In other words, the last thing that happens in chapter 18 is a restoration, a repairing of the altar and a turning back to Yahweh God. There's reality and there's perception of reality and fear widens the gap. So the question for us is, where is fear active in our lives? Distorting reality. We need to tune into the still small voice that closes the gap. Second effect of fear, it erodes faith. It chokes faith. This is how the writer of Hebrews defines faith. It's confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is a way of seeing. So just as fear distorts reality of the present, it also distorts reality of the future. Fear basically enables us to see into the future and basically says, I believe that the promises of God regarding my future, the promises will come to pass. And when fear kicks in, faith levels diminish, hope levels diminish and despair kicks in. Hope deferred makes the heart sick and we are seeing sickness all around us. Fear chokes faith. So listen to what happens. Verse four and five, Elijah came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. We don't really talk about heroes of the faith having suicidal thoughts, but that's exactly what's going on in this moment. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. 
Like he's had the breakthrough Mount Carmel and this is a breakdown moment. Fear, choking life, choking faith. You know, the Greek word for anxiety is merimneo. It literally means to be divided or distracted. This is how anxiety manifests itself. It creates internal division. In moments when fear kicks in, we begin to question, can we actually put our hope and faith in God? Or maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. Is actually God good? Is he powerful enough to bring those promises into our present? I'm not sure he is. So maybe I need to take matters into my own hand. But even this response creates anxiety because I know I don't have the internal resources for the darkness that surrounds. And I don't have the resources for this wilderness moment. Do I trust God or take matters into my own hand? And panic begins to rise, internal division. What does Paul say, Philippians 4? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything present your requests to God. And then this peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Like here's the lesson I would say from Philippians 4. If you can worry, you can pray. Like if you can worry, most of us are pretty good. If you can worry, you can pray. Like if your worry without God is like a downward spiral, I just don't think I can do this. Like I feel so out of my depths. I'm not really sure I can cope. This is what prayer looks like. Dear Lord, I'm really stressed. I'm not really sure I can cope. I don't think I have the resources for that moment. Amen. In other words, bring your prayers and petitions, your worry, bring it into the presence of God. Bring it into a conversation with God. This is what the psalmist is consistently doing. Psalm 86. Hear my prayer, Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. The psalmist isn't saying to himself, like some self-help psychology, pull it together. There's some internal division, but pull yourself together. Be strong, be courageous. No, the psalmist is coming before the Lord saying, I really need you right now. Like, hear my cry. And when I'm in distress, I'm going to call to you because you answer me. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. You know what the Lord is looking for right now? Undivided hearts. Hearts that desire one thing, not multiple things, not you, God, and comfort and wealth and success in the workplace. It's like, no, an undivided heart says one thing I ask and one thing I seek that I may dwell in your house all the days of my life. Lord, my deepest desire is your presence. It's frightening out there. Like it feels pretty dark and I'm praying the daylight would break in. But even in the midst of the darkness, would you come and hold me? Would you come and embrace me? I long, above all else, I long for your presence. Lord, give me an undivided heart. There's internal division. Give me an undivided heart. Number three, Fear makes you run and hide. When fear kicks in, there's a physiological response, like an adrenaline rush kicks in and you want to run, shrink back from your destiny, shrink back from the threshold and run for cover. 25 years ago, I was a youth pastor in South Africa 
And before I went to South Africa, I did a bit of Google research. And because I wanted to know how to survive a one-on-one encounter with the big five animals of the safari, right? I thought, you never know. I know I'm going to be living in Port Elizabeth, an urban context, but you never know. So I, I basically looked up, you know, lion, leopard, rhino, elephant, buffalo. If I find myself in a one-on-one encounter, like how do I survive? And the chances of survival are small, just to break it to you. They're, they're not great. Um, But let's just go through a few of them. So a a rhino, imagine you're in a one-on-one encounter with a rhino. Um, Now, rhinos are fast. Don't back yourself to outsprint a rhino. You're not gonna, right? But they have really bad sight. So what you do is you slowly retreat. And they might think you're a tree. They're not very clever, but because of the poor sight, they may think you're a tree. If they charge, at that point, you turn and run. But you do not run in a straight line. If you run in a straight line, you're going to find a horn where you do not want a horn, right? So what you do is you run in a zigzag fashion and hopefully you find a tree, you climb a tree or you jump into a bush or jump into the undergrowth and because of their eyesight, they probably won't find you. And there's a chance, small chance, there's a chance you'll survive. What about an elephant, right? Now with an elephant, again, same technique, you slowly like back down and when they charge at that point, you run. Again, you don't run in a straight line um, because they can't shift direction because they're so huge. You run in a zigzag. And this is what I read in this article. This is legit. This is what I read in the article. It cracked me up about how to survive an elephant attack. Elephants are actually really scared of bees. If you have enough forethought, you might want to carry a big speaker system equipped with African bee sounds. (laughs) Studies have shown that they'll back down if this sound is played. Even elephants with thick skin make it a high priority to avoid getting stung. Now, I know you're thinking, we live in Portland. How is this helpful? You never know, right? So, So what you do in that situation, you start running zigzag. You pull out a significant speaker system in one hand. You grab your phone, you get on Spotify, you find African B sounds and you pray to God for mercy. That's the wisdom from the article. What about a lion? Now, one-on-one encounter with a lion. Now, the wisdom is you just got to stay still. Like don't start running and big movements. You want them to think you're an intimidating presence. So you make noise, you clap your hands and you speak loudly. I would suggest in tongues. That wasn't in the article, but I'd suggest in tongues as you pray for mercy in big movements. And when they charge, and they often do charge, but it can be a false charge, you still stand your ground, you stand your ground and you pray for mercy. Now, this is a tenuous link, I know. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says the enemy like prowls like a roaring lion looking for prey to devour. And the wisdom throughout Scripture, particularly the Apostle Paul as he teaches about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, is you stand your ground. In Ephesians 6, he talks about the the spiritual, the armour of God, but the verb he consistently uses is stand your ground. And when you've done everything else, you stand The enemy wants you to run and hide, to shrink back from the threshold moment, to step back from your destiny and your response and our response should be to stand our ground. Listen to these examples from the Old Testament, from the Exodus story, as Moses stands before this massive ocean and the most powerful army on the planet is chasing them down. He raises his staff to the waters. He answers the people, do not be afraid, stand 
Good reading, it's up on the screen, there we go. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. 2 Chronicles 20, a story with King Jehoshaphat. These armies come against him. He says, this battle is not yours, it's God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions and stand. There we go. And see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Here's a lesson about spiritual warfare. You just stand your ground. You do the standing, God will do the advancing. Don't get cocky and think, Lord, I'm gonna give this one a go. Let, Let me just have a go. I'm gonna do some advancing here. Don't get cocky. You just stand your ground. You do the standing, God will do the advancing. Lesson number four, fear drowns out the voice of God. So there's an earthquake, there's a wind and there's a fire, but God isn't in the earthquake, the wind and the fire. It says that after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, a better translation of the Hebrew wordplay there comes in the NRSV. After the fire, there's a sound of sheer silence. It's an oxymoron. How can there be a sound if there's sheer silence? But you need to know this, this isn't a silence marked by absence. This is a silence filled, saturated with presence. The thickness of God's presence in that place. Now, a number of commentators basically say this is the moment where Elijah comes to the end of his ministry, which is why the next few verses are about handing the baton on to Elisha. Right, Because if you're a prophet and when you lean in to hear the voice of God, if what you hear is the sound of sheer silence, that's a problem if it's your job to hear the voice of God and pass it on to the community. Um, So essentially, this is a moment where his ministry comes to an end and it's a moment of succession. But there's something deeper going on here, right? Which is God encountering Elijah and basically saying, I've used you powerfully, but I want you to know your, your highest priority has never been being effective as a prophet. Your highest priority has always been presence, to encounter my presence. It says in Scripture that Elijah was a man just like us in the book of James. In other words, he experienced brokenness and insecurity and probably on his darker days began to find identity and how effective he was being as a prophet. And in this encounter where God says, okay, you're going to hand on your ministry, but I want you to know that my love for you isn't dependent on your usefulness or how effective you've been as a prophet. I love you because I love you. Some of us in this room, we might think we are as lovable as we are effective in the kingdom, as we are useful. If I'm sharing my faith, leading people to Jesus, if I'm serving the poor, if I'm giving, if I'm filling the blanks, then I'm useful um, and then I'm lovable. And God wants you to know that he does want to use you. And you may be temporarily useful, but you are eternally loved. And the strongest foundation for your life and faith is the knowledge that you are eternally loved loved. That's what's going on for Elijah. So we've looked at the effect that fear has on our lives. Let's look at the lessons from how God responds with Elijah. God is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. He meets us at our point of need. Verse 5, Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. What I love about this encounter It's pretty much everywhere else in Scripture. When you have an angelic being, the first thing the angel says, I'm sure there's some training for angels, the first thing you're meant to say when you encounter a human is, do not be afraid. 
Because when you witness an angelic being radiating light, radiating the glory of God, the human response is to freak out. So the angelic training is, you must say, do not be afraid. Now, the angel doesn't say that. And my hunch is, Elijah is so exhausted, so knackered, emotionally, spiritually, physically spent that when he comes to, he doesn't really even notice the angelic being. What he does notice is the modern day equivalent of a flat white and a pan au chocolat. Like the angel has just created the dream breakfast. So he doesn't really engage in conversation of, wow, angelic being, that's cool. Oh, thanks so much for the, um, for the flat white and the um, pan au chocolat. And, and then, no conversation, he falls asleep again. Now, I don't know how the angel responds to this moment of like, I've got other errands. Like, you're wasting my time here. But it seems that the angel's like, okay, that's cool. He has another sleep and he wakes up and what is left is more flat white and pan au chocolat, like living the dream. Um, and he consumes the, the food and the drink and then the story continues. But, but this, this is so beautiful and it speaks of something so beautiful about the character and nature of God. He, he knows what we need. Like the message from the angel isn't like, hey, you've just had, the, had this like climactic moment on Mount Carmel. You should be riding high on faith. Like you don't need to be fearful of Jezebel. You don't need to fear. You should be riding high on faith. A little pep talk, right? But Elijah's greatest need is sleep, rest, some good food and an encounter with grace. And what the angel does is basically say, here's some rest and some really good food and you need to get ready for an encounter with grace. Some of you in this room, you're emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally maybe spent. You're exhausted and you're trying to G yourself up, muster strength from within. You should be riding high on faith. You should be fill in the blanks. And God wants to encounter you today and say, I, I want to deposit some rest and I want to feed the deep longings of your soul and I want to lead you to an encounter with grace which is what happens next. God is a God of grace. He's the God of restoration. So verse eight, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. 40 days, 40 nights, that should ring bells. 40 years in the wilderness for the people of Israel. So they arrive at Mount Horeb. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So here's a summary diagrammatically of the journey that Elijah takes. Victory over Baal, climactic moment, 40 days and nights in the wilderness. And then another climactic moment at Mount Horeb where he encounters the God of grace. Now listening to the story, the shape of the story should ring some bells. Because if I was to summarise the Exodus narrative, which is the most formative narrative for the Jewish community, the narrative that shapes the imagination of the people of God. The Exodus journey looks like this, climactic moment at the Red Sea, deliverance at the Red Sea, 40 years through the wilderness and another climactic moment on that journey at Mount Sinai, where they enter into covenant relationship with God and God says, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna covenant myself to you and I'm gonna lead you to abundance and you're gonna be a vehicle of healing and, and restoration and deliverance to the nations, right? An amazing moment. And what's fascinating about the story of Elijah and the story of the Exodus is essentially, they become one because you might not know this but Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are one and the same mountain two names one mountain 
And this is a moment where God says to Elijah, I want to take you back to the moment where the covenant began. Like you're rock bottom right now. You're emotionally, spiritually, mentally like spent. You're wanting to throw the towel in. But I want to remind you of the promises I made over you, the promises I made to a nation that I'm a covenant keeping God. I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with the nation yet. Yet every promise is yes and amen in me and all my purposes will come to pass. It's a wake up moment for Elijah of like, God is with me. And that births courage in me that ahead of me, this might be a threshold moment, but ahead of me, there is fruitfulness and there is abundance. God is the God of restoration. When you screw up in moments of breakdown, when you're wanting to throw the towel in, you need to know that God will keep all his promises, right? That his kingdom purposes will come to pass because he is faithful. Throughout scripture, we realise so often our contribution is, is we mess up. We're unfaithful, but God remains faithful. Adam and Eve fail, but God is faithful. Abraham has sex with his wife's maidservant, takes matters into his own hands, but God is faithful. David commits adultery and murder, but God is faithful. Israel worshiped the gods of the nation, but God is faithful, pushing forward his covenantal purposes. Israel end up in Babylon, in exile, but God finds a way. It keeps building, it keeps building to the point where you have God taking on human flesh, living, dying, rising to new life. And we're reminded as we look at the person of Jesus, God is faithful. Every promise is yes and amen in Him. I love these words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Even when it's messy, even when we're like struggling, God is faithful, pushing forward his redemptive purposes. Finally then, God is a God of intimacy. There's earthquake, there's wind and there's fire. But the text makes it clear that God wasn't in the earthquake, the wind or the fire, which is a surprise because elsewhere in Scripture, when there's earthquake, wind and fire, these tend to be manifestations of God's presence. So going back to Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. On the morning of the third day, there was thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. In other words, earthquake. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Earthquake, wind, fire, manifestations of presence. Psalm 102, he makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Isaiah 29, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire, like Pentecost, earthquake, wind, fire. When there's earthquake, wind and fire, normally these are manifestations of presence, but in 1 Kings 19, that the text clearly says he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the wind and he wasn't in the fire. He was present with this whisper in the wilderness, this still small voice. I think there's a lesson for us. Never confuse God's power with his intimacy 
We often want demonstrations of power. To be honest, when I turned up at the Hughes Auditorium at Asbury, I, I was kind of hoping for some fireworks. But what I found was way more beautiful than fireworks. I found the presence of Jesus, the one who satisfies every longing of the human heart. Like fear is noisy. Fear is really noisy. Intimacy whispers. Like you whisper sweet nothings to your partner. You don't shout them to your partner. If you do, we'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. But the normal thing to do is whisper sweet nothings, right? God wants to whisper to his people at this threshold moment, I'm with you. I want to remind you of my covenant. Like I'm, I'm a covenant keeping God. I'm with you. I'm leading you to abundance. The light is going to break in. I am with you. I mean, this is what Paul says, Ephesians 3. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he prays for power, but the power has a purpose. I pray that you'd be strengthened with power. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. But what is the power for? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with this love that surpasses knowledge to the measure of all the fullness of God. The priority is presence. And this is what the Lord is stirring in the church right now. He's stirring it at KXC. He's stirring it here at Bridgetown. He's stirring it in churches across the globe, like reminding the church, the priority is my presence. I want to draw close to you. Like the dawn from on high is breaking, but even in the darkness, I want to whisper intimacy to my people. I'll, I'll land with this. When you look at significant moves of God throughout human history, just before the dawn breaks, there's a moment where leaders hit a point of breakdown. Like where they experience a deep wilderness and suddenly in the wilderness where fear is noisy, they begin to tune into a whisper. Like the Reformation, the story of Martin Luther, now, the story we often don't tell is just before he has this like breakthrough, rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith, he has a full-on breakdown where he feels like he's plummeted into darkness. He's terrified. Fear surrounds him and then the light breaks in. This rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith. And as the light breaks in, it shapes the spiritual landscape of a continent, right? A whisper in the wilderness. Think of the revival, the evangelical awakening. John Wesley had been ministering here in the States. It had been a disaster. He returns to the UK and he's feeling like a failure. He's wrestling with doubt. He's not sure what he believes. And a friend says, you should go to this prayer night, a Moravian prayer meeting. And he rocks up to this Moravian prayer meeting and the fire from heaven falls upon him. And it says his heart was strangely warmed. And most commentators say that that was the beginning of the evangelical awakening. He was in a wilderness, but he heard a whisper and the fire of heaven fell. Think of the, the revolution, the civil rights movement, that story of Martin Luther King. Intimidation, back down, do not step forward, a wilderness moment. And then he hears a whisper, I am with you. I am with you, step forward. The charismatic renewal movement that I mentioned earlier John Wimber, one of the key leaders in that movement, he basically read the book of Acts. He came to the conclusion that we should be seeing all of the same stuff today in the church. The gifts of the Spirit, like 
you know, healing, deliverance, all of it. We should be seeing all of it. And he was stepping into it and seeing no fruit. He was so discouraged. So the story is that he found himself in a hotel room in Dallas, basically having a conversation with God saying, I quit, I can't do this anymore. Like I've been trying, leaning in, praying for the sick, trying to cast out demons, trying to do the stuff that I see in the book of Acts and in the gospels, but I'm not seeing any fruit. I can't do this anymore. And then he heard a whisper basically say to him, John, I've seen what you can do. And now I want to show you what I can do, right? And that was the beginning of the charismatic renewal movement. And suddenly this wave of the spirit hit California. This wave of the spirit hit the UK. Signs and wonders and manifestations of the presence of God. And the church in the UK, like large chunks of the church of the UK came alive in that season. But there was a wilderness before it. And there was a lot of anxiety. And there was a still, small voice. I believe Bridgetown, this is a threshold moment for the church, the wider church. I think it's a threshold moment for you. Your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. Like God is wanting to invite you into abundance, into fruitfulness. You're going to need more space, by the way. It's pretty full in here. There's not much space. But if abundance is coming, if a fresh move of God is coming, and if the movement of the Spirit attracts in those that are hurting and desperate for new life, you're going to need some more space, right? This is a threshold moment and you will experience pushback. The enemy will seek to intimidate you, shrink back. It's not worth the cost. Like cynicism, all these things to to invite you to step back from the threshold. But you need to tune in to a still small voice. And that still small voice says, you're not alone. I am with you and you don't need to shrink back. You can step forward because beyond this threshold, there is abundance. Right beyond this threshold, there are green pastures and there are still waters. Like this is a moment where the church is going to come alive. Winter is passing, springs upon us. We should be incredibly excited, even though there's darkness that surrounds. There's a whisper in the wilderness and we need to tune in to that still small.